Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What's up, everybody? We welcome you into another edition of Inside Boxing Live. I am your host, Dan Canovio, coming to you once again from Brooklyn, New York. And we have a special edition of the show uh, this week. Joining me on the program, you know him as the legendary broadcaster, one of the greatest to ever do it. Mr. Jim Lampley joins us here for a really interesting talk. Obviously, uh, there aren't any fights going on, a lot of speculation going on in the world of boxing when we're going to get back uh, since None of us have the answers. I wanted to be more of a reflective conversation uh, with Jim. We did touch on uh, some of the fights that we've seen so far in 2020. We touched on some of the fights that we could potentially see uh, to end out the year and start the beginning of 2021. It was more of a a look back, uh, a reflective type of conversation uh, with Jim. He also gave us his five favorite fights from ringside. You're not going to want to miss this interview uh, with Jim Lampley. It was really, really great stuff. Uh, from the GOAT of uh, broadcasting, and maybe we see him once again. Maybe we see him once again calling fights uh, and doing uh, what he loves to do. Because right now he's a uh, he's a professor of all things. He's uh, teaching a, a course in, in media at UNC Chapel Hill. We also talked about the Michael Jordan documentary. He, of course, is uh, friends with Michael Jordan, had some great uh, stories there. Uh, but we'll touch on that with, with uh, Jim Lampley. Also, uh, if you're a fan of the show and you want to see more of this show, you can subscribe to us on YouTube at CompuBox TV. You can also check us out on iTunes. Leave us a, a five-star rating. Leave us a review. Those are all great things to keep this show coming to you so we can bring you the best um, guests and the best analysis uh, possible. Coming up next... A nice sit-down with the GOAT, Jim Lampley. Our next interview on Inside Boxing Live is brought to you by Jack Doyle's Restaurant and Bar. Jack Doyle's Restaurant and Bar located just a few steps away from Madison Square Garden and Times Square. Go into Jack Doyle's for all your entertainment needs. From happy hours to birthday parties to private events, Jack Doyle's has you covered. Once again, that's Jack Doyle's Restaurant and Bar located on 240 West 35th Street. Joining us right now here on Inside Boxing Live is a man who doesn't really need an introduction. He is the legendary Jim Lampley. Jim, first off, uh, we got to ask how you're doing over there in Chapel Hill. How's the family in these very strange times? Uh, great to be with you, Dan. I'm uh, here in Chapel Hill. We uh, teach a one-semester course in the communications department, uh, and it's a great place to hunker down during a pandemic. <laughs> Were you able to have any time with the students in person before this all came down? Oh, yeah. You know, the first half of the semester, uh, January, February, well into March, we were we were together. And uh, and I got a taste of, uh, of what it's like to teach on a day-to-day basis, and it was enormous fun. Uh, now, is it, it's a so broadcasting class, right? It's um, this, the title of the course, which I created myself, is evolution of storytelling in American electronic news media. And in essence, it charts a 100 year timeline to uh, from 1920 to 2020 and examines um, how news stories uh, are created, disseminated, received, 
and, um, and what changes in technology and institutions over time have affected all that. Uh, and frankly, what's most uh, kind of striking about what happened here is that uh, once we were blocked from being together and we were in the second half of the semester, and I asked the students to turn their attention on a daily basis to a broad assortment of news media to look at how stories were developed and affected by the institutions which deliver them and how they struck the audience, we could not have had a more graphic and richly illustrative laboratory for my subject than what went down. Yeah. Uh, because this whole period of time has been about media, about the way the public treats media, about the subject of truth and the convention of truth, and why is it now so fragile compared to what we once had, and the implications of all that for public health. You could not have had a, a better day-to-day -day subject with which to teach than, than I wound up with in uh, Communications 490. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I know it's people are, are digesting media in, in all different ways now. The standards have certainly lowered. I mean, you know, webcams and people broadcasting from their living rooms. I'm coming to you from Brooklyn, New York and in, in my apartment. It, it, it's just a wild time. And that's interesting to see how many of the students are boxing fans or know about your past. I, I couldn't tell whether any of them uh, <laughs> knew, knew anything about my past. Uh, they. There were about three or four of them who definitely made references to boxing and had watched fights with their fathers and uh, knew who I was. But the vast majority didn't have any particular connection to that. They just knew that I was a UNC alumnus who had spent a lot of time in network television broadcasting and might have something interesting to say about it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was a great group. I really, really have enjoyed them and can't wait to see them again on campus and bump elbows uh, at some time in the future. That's really cool. That's that's awesome. But uh, uh, you know, while we're on the on the topic, a lot of things are swirling around about the boxing world. How we're going to get back and 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 all that having fights in, in closed arenas. And I wanted to get your your thoughts from, uh, from a broadcasting standpoint of calling fights without a crowd. Now you uh, you know have called fights for on rehearsals when there's not a lot of fans uh, in in attendance, but. That's not a championship caliber fight. That's not between a fight that would usually air on TV. How would a broadcaster have to go about that? Or how would you go about calling fights without fans in the crowd? It's not particularly easy. Um, in my first 13 years of network television, I worked for ABC Sports and I did many, many event coverages on ABC's Wide World of Sports, uh, which aired in what, what you call tape delay. Uh, so I would have to go into a voiceover studio and recreate with my voice uh, the kind of excitement that you would experience at a live event with, <clears throat> excuse me, with a large crowd around you. Uh, and it's a challenge. And, you know, it can be done. I think skilled broadcasters have done it uh, for decades and, and have done it reasonably well. But by no means, <clears throat> excuse me, by no means is it the same thing as being at an, in an arena with an audience. That's just a, a natural wellspring of energy and excitement that you can't create in an empty studio with a microphone and a sound engineer. Uh, you can try, and, and I did. And you know, I think in some ways we must have 
gotten away with it. But um, most of the live event broadcasters in my current generation of broadcasting didn't have that experience. Uh, so to, for, for them to go in and do a show without a live audience would be um, an initiation. I at least have a background. It's been decades since I've done it, but I know what it feels like. Uh, and like I said, it's, it's not easy. It's a professional challenge. But, you know, an audience hungry for boxing and, and hungry to see the fighters achieving against each other the way they do um, will allow for whatever difference in, in atmosphere they feel uh, with the absence of a live audience. Yeah, I'm curious to see how this is all going to shake out in terms of whether the announcers will be ringside or whether they will be what you just explained, uh, you know, voicing it over in a studio somewhere in California. Because those are two different things uh, in itself. Yes, and there'll be a difference in sound quality. You know, if you're in an, an empty 12,000 seat arena, seated next to ringside, uh, feeding audio from there through a system, that'll sound one way. If you're in a uh, an enclosed studio, uh, doing it the way I used to do for ABC's Wide World of Sports, that'll sound a different way. In either case, the uh, controlling audio engineer will have the opportunity to enhance if he wants mm -hmm. to. And that becomes a sort of ethical and operational question. Uh, if we pipe in the crowd noise from, say, uh, Gennady Golovkin versus Canelo Alvarez to cover an existing fight at this moment, which has no audience, uh, is that a welcome piece of theater or uh, an unconscionable piece of fakery uh, for the audience? And I, I could see people going either way with that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think most people would kind of want the fantasy of a live audience somehow or another. Yeah, it's something that we're tinkering with, we'll just say, or with, with CompuBox. But yeah, it's interesting because I watch a lot of these, um, this Taiwan baseball league, just to get it. I'm a huge baseball fan, just to get a, a glimpse of, of how they're doing it over there. And there's no fans in attendance, but I'm still watching the games. And if you watch Major League Baseball last season, uh, or the last couple seasons, you know, attendance is, is is really down in Major League Baseball. Yeah, there's fans behind home plate, but, you know, you hit a home run into the cheap seats. There are no fans in, in that camera frame, but it still feels like uh, Major League Baseball. So I think, you know, it's going to be interesting. I, think, like, I do agree that fans are starved uh, for sports, and they are definitely starved uh, for boxing. But going back to the boxing world, you know, this is the time where a lot of fans are are in reflective mode, boxing fans. They're, they're tweeting about uh, fights that have – you know, taking place, their favorite fights, re-watching old fights. Uh, is there a fighter that has burst onto the scene since HBO went dark that has taken a notice uh, for you? Well, um, you couldn't say that Tyson Fury has burst on the scene, per se, since HBO stopped covering boxing, because Tyson Fury was around and around for quite a while, um, while HBO was still in the business of covering boxing, and, and I was... Uh, calling fights for them. Um, but I think the most exciting thing that's happened since I left ringside broadcasting, at least for the time being, I don't expect to be gone permanently, but the most exciting thing that's happened is the action in the heavyweight division and, uh, and what Fury did in, uh, in both of the Wilder fights. I think it uh, was all very, very exciting for fans and uh, an interesting rejuvenation in interest in, uh, in boxing. And, you know, there's 
there's nothing that draws the general audience into boxing like heavyweight excitement. Uh, so for people to for people to see what Fury has done and for sophisticated boxing fans to recognize the significance of his role reversal, you know, the fact that he did in the second Wilder fight exactly what he said he did, which nobody believed he was even going to try and and pulled it off. It makes it look as though this guy can win either way he wants to against the best opposition in the world. And that's very interesting. Yeah, chalk, chalk me up as one of the people that did not believe he was going to come in at 270 and someone that didn't think he was going to take the fight uh, to Wilder. I was in attendance ringside for that uh, work in the comfort box. The atmosphere was off the charts. Looks like it's going to be the only super fight uh, of 2020. But I'm talking about like maybe guys like, you know, there's this new young crop of fighters and they have certainly, that's why he was burst onto the scene. Like guys like Tiafimo Lopez or uh, uh, Ryan Garcia, those are any like younger guys that, that have, you know, in the last two years, you know, made leaps and bounds that you were not able to broadcast? Well, Teofimo Lopez is very exciting, and uh, I think there's every reason for the general boxing audience to be uh, very, very hungry to see what happens if Teofimo Lopez, with all of that physical talent, gets into the ring with Vasily Lomachenko, with all of that technical talent, uh, and, and see how it goes. That's an enormously attractive fight. So clearly you're up on your boxing. I mean, you know what's going on. You're watching. Like you even said yourself that you don't think it's going to be permanent. You're calling fights. You know, it's the million-dollar question. I put out the a tweet that you were going to join us here on the show. Got flooded with responses. I would say the, the vast majority of them were beg him to come back. Uh, does you still want to call fights? I'll just ask you right now since, you know, you're almost obligated to ask you at this point. Uh, do you still want to come back and call fights, and do you see that in your future? Of course I'd like to call fights. Uh, and And I think if... Coronavirus hadn't hit, I uh, would probably be calling fights somewhere uh, at, at this time. But uh, coronavirus did hit, and the landscape has changed, and um, we'll have to see what happens. You know, the, the world isn't going to rise or fall on the question of whether I call fights again, but uh, I certainly do want to do that. Well, obviously, fans love to how you called fights and they regard you as the, the, the greatest to ever do it. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of people watching old fights. So it's almost like people appreciated you while you're on the job, but they're appreciating you even more as all we have is old fights. I mean, they're replaying old fights on Showtime. They're replaying them on, on ESPN. People are gathering around. A lot of people are hearing your calls for the first time. So I wouldn't uh, sell yourself so short there, Jim. Well, uh, you know, the beauty of boxing, even more than other sports, it's a 365 day a year information process. Uh, when a, when a, a sport has a regularized schedule and you know who's going to play whom on what day, then there's a level of anticipation and uh, informational hunger that doesn't really exist because those decisions have already been made. In boxing, those decisions are being made every day and changed every day uh, within a nonstop 24-hour-a-day time frame. And so uh, boxing fans always have something to argue about, comment about, anticipate with excitement, whether people are in the ring or not. Now, you know, logic tells you that can't last forever. But uh, the simple fact that Fury's not fighting at this moment or Lomachenko's not fighting at this moment or Teofimo Lopez is not fighting at this moment or Gennady Golovkin doesn't have a fight, that doesn't mean that fans aren't just as interested in them as they always have been. It's the nature of boxing that we are always speculating, 
and talking to each other about what might happen next. And now is no different than a year ago in that regard. That's crazy because they fight what? Fight two times a year. So that's 363 other days where we're speculating, talking about them, you know, analyzing every every last move. But you brought up the fact that you thought you you if coronavirus didn't hit, you would be calling fights. Did you have any discussions with, with networks that ever get along to that level? Next question. <laughs> I had to ask it, Jim. You know, I had to ask it. Another reason I summoned you on this on this show was to talk about the last dance. Uh, you're a North Carolina guy. Obviously, you're now a professor at the University of North Carolina. You attended uh, UNC. You had run-ins with Michael Jordan. Uh, you actually appeared. I knew I heard your voice on one of those first two episodes of this uh, really, really good documentary. Could you share any great Michael Jordan stories uh, with, with the listeners here? Well, I know a lot of Michael Jordan stories, um, and, and a lot of them come from other former Carolina players. Uh, most particularly, James Worthy has spectacular Michael Jordan stories, uh, and I could sit here and tell them to you all day long, but they'd be secondhand because they're really James's stories uh, and, and not mine. But, you know, he's, he is to this day the source of constant conversation in Chapel Hill, and, uh, and he should be. And you can't walk down Franklin Street in Chapel Hill and step into a restaurant without seeing uh, a large framed photograph of Michael at the top of his jump, hitting the jump shot that beat Georgetown uh, in, in 1982. And uh, so, you know, that moment is like yesterday for, uh, for Carolina basketball fans, regardless of how many national championships we won since then. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it's kind of thrilling to be here on the ground in Chapel Hill at the moment when the last dance is, is showing and, uh, and a lot of those memories, uh, come back to us. And, uh, and I've had the privilege of sharing with my family members and some of my friends, a lot of the things that Worthy told me from behind the scenes, you know, we talk about the absence of an audience and how that affects a sports event. Uh, I did the Dean Smith radio show here in Chapel Hill long before I ever did any broadcasting outside of, uh, of this area. So it was one of my privileges early on when I was first getting into broadcasting that I was close to the basketball program and watched what went on. And I've seen pickup games in Carmichael Auditorium or even before that in Woolen Gym uh, which were just as fierce, just as competitive, and uh, and just as meaningful in their way as any NCAA tournament game you could ever see. Because uh, you're looking at All-America players on both sides. You know, one of the things that people don't understand about Duke and Carolina, these two schools are eight miles apart. Yep. There are pickup basketball games all year long. These players who are seen by the fans to, quote, hate each other and, you know, be involved in this vicious competition on the three occasions during the season when they're going to get together. They play each other 50 times in the off season. And yeah. sometimes the Duke players are on the same team with the Carolina players and vice versa. So uh, it, it's a, um, you know, competitive sports generate their own emotions. You don't need 20,000 people in the arena for the players to be excited about what they're doing in those pickup games. I've watched them. Uh, and you know, when two great fighters get into the ring to spar in the gym yeah. and it's the first time they've ever sparred with each other and maybe there are only eight or nine people standing around the, uh, the ring 
and watching what they do, it's big, it's emotional. Mm -hmm. They're testing themselves and they want to see what it's like to be in there with somebody else who's great. You know, one of the greatest Jordan stories, uh, which touches on that, was when he was a freshman here at Carolina and James Worthy was the national player of the year. And the first time Jordan ever played on the court with Worthy in a pickup game. At the end of the game, as people were going off the court and going to get their gym bags and leave the gym, Jordan went up and tapped Worthy on the shoulder and said, play one-on-one -on -one with me. <laughs> and Worthy's like, what? And Jordan <laughs> said, play one-on-one -on -one with me. You know, I want to see how good I am because you're the number one player. So let's see how close I am to you. And, and Worthy told me that story years before I saw it in the last game. And, and James told me that story in the context of we never had anybody else like that. We, we never had another player who would have stepped up in that way and said, James Worthy, National Player of the Year, don't leave yet. I need to match with you one-on-one. -on -one. Unbelievable. I mean, it's un it's unbelievable. It, it's it's interesting because and it's fun you bring up these these uh, you know sparring sessions, weaving it in with the the pickup games between Duke and UNC. Because I was able to befriend uh, Brendan Haywood, who is a UNC legend in his own right, uh, while working at CBS, and he told me endless stories uh, about you know playing pickup ball with uh, you know Duke players uh, during uh, you know summer leagues and, and just during summertime, just just hanging around uh, on campus. So you're right, and I, I did see a lot of fighters. Uh, bring up the fact that sometimes sparring sessions are more heated than what you see on, on TV. So there is a way uh, to generate that same type of adrenaline and, and that, that same type of buzz. Uh, but moving forward into why I really wanted to have you here on the show. Like I said, boxing fans are in such a reflective mood right now. They're watching old fights. They're they're talking about old fights. Like I said, I put out this tweet. First of all, Jim, do you ever have you ever thought about hopping on on Twitter? Finally uh, signing up. Uh, I don't tweet. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it was kind of a, um, a challenge to me in dealing with my uh, Com 490 course that I don't participate in social media. Um, from a philosophical standpoint, I would say to you that social media are the death of civility, which ultimately leads to the death of civilization. We'll see how that process plays out long after I'm gone uh, from the planet. But uh, I get my... Uh, Twitter input or Facebook or Instagram input uh, secondhand from other people because I won't do it. So that's a no. I'm going to get a no from that one. Yes, people want to see, see you on Twitter. Harry Rose, of all people, finally logged uh, onto, onto Twitter. And he gained, I think he had like 50,000 followers in like a week. Uh, I think you can go skyrocket even more than that, but it doesn't seem like you're interested in it. People tell me every day <laughs> that eventually I will do it. And, and I say to them, all right, how many years has Facebook been around? And, and how huge a force is it in terms of communications on the planet? I think you could make the point that Facebook is the single most powerful media entity ever in terms of how it influences people. Mm -hmm. I won't do it. All right. Okay. Not going to do it. Not, not going to see Jim Lampley uh, on Twitter. I can see him on TikTok, Snapchat. Not going to get it. But like I said, yeah, reflect. Like Top your box live. That's all. <laughs> it's good that we have you here. That, that's that's wonderful. I'll put it on Twitter. How about that? Uh, but I want to get your five favorite fights before we let you go back to, to grading your papers. Your five most favorite fights. doesn't have to be in any order. I'm going to put this together because fans want to know. Like Maybe they'll, they'll listen to what you say and they'll go back and watch some of these fights. So in any order, uh, let's hear Jim Lampley's five most favorite fights from ringside. 
Uh, you know, I sent you the written list, so now yes. I'll have to figure out. You know, <laughs> I have it myself. I believe the first one I put on the list was Tyson Douglas. Yep. Okay, so. Take us through. Um, the very first fight I ever called on television was Mike Tyson versus Jesse Ferguson on uh, ABC Sports in 1986. And I called Tyson's first several uh, network television exposures on ABC. And then eventually when he went to HBO, I migrated and uh, followed him to HBO. And ultimately what that leads to is uh, Tyson Douglas in Tokyo. And uh, the interesting sort of setup for that is that the very first prize fight I ever attended live in my entire life was February 25, 1964 in Miami Beach, the Miami Beach Convention Center when Cassius Clay upset Sonny Liston to become the heavyweight champion of the world. I was a huge Cassius Clay fan. Uh, I was there to idolize him. Uh, I was probably the only person I knew in my neighborhood, at my school, anywhere, who would have said, oh yes, Cassius Clay is going to win this fight. Uh, and he did. And that was, at that moment, the biggest upset in the history of boxing. Fast forward 26 years. And now I'm sitting in Tokyo at 11 o'clock in the morning, calling the fight between Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas. And somewhere in the middle of the fight, when the competitive pattern was fully established and the, the outcome begins to come into view, I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, the very first fight I ever attended was the biggest upset in the history of boxing. And now I'm sitting here calling the fight, which is going to succeed that as the biggest upset in the history of boxing. So um, that was the, the bizarre synchronicity of all that. And then you put that together with uh, me, Larry and Ray, my, my first broadcast team at uh, HBO. Uh, the bizarre nature of the event, as I say, 11 o'clock in the morning, 35,000 people in the arena, none of them making a sound. It, you know, you talk about calling a fight with no crowd noise. That was a calling a fight with no crowd noise. I mean, it was, it was so silent at the beginning, you could hear the slapping of Douglas and Tyson's shoes on the canvas. Uh, and, and so uh, it, was, it was highly unusual, unforgettable in a lot of ways. And I think to this day, uh, on that basis, you would still say that I called the single biggest upset in the history of boxing. Let's stick with the heavyweights. This has actually happened three years ago today as we sit and record this at Wembley Stadium, Vladimir Klitschko, Anthony Joshua. Max Kellerman calls it, quote, the greatest sports event he's ever seen. Not just the greatest fight, but the greatest sports event. And, and I know what he's talking about. He's talking about the totality of it all. He's talking about the 90,000 people in Wembley Stadium. He's talking about the anticipation about Joshua uh, taking his place in the line of succession of great heavyweight champions. And we've already touched on, uh, on that subject with uh, Ali and, and Tyson, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was breathtaking even before the bell rang. Uh, and then you get a terrific seesaw fight in which both guys are on the canvas. And in the late rounds, either the old veteran champion is going to impose his will 
and win this fight or the new young vibrant force is going to do that and and put his name on that masthead with all of the great preceding heavyweight champions and Joshua scores the dramatic knockout uh, to to create that imprint. Uh, it was an absolutely unforgettable event, and I feel privileged that I called Going down the line to the middleweight division, I was really excited to see your, this on here, and I want to get your thoughts on, on exactly why. June 2013, Foxwoods, Connecticut, Triple G takes on Matthew Macklin. Well, Triple G was a new entity on HBO uh, over the course of the preceding couple of years, and uh, at that time, we had Boxing After Dark, and we had uh, the main telecast at World Championship Boxing, and Bob... Papa was the blow-by-blow guy on Boxing After Dark, and I was on World Championship Boxing. So coming up to the Golovkin-Macklin fight, HBO viewers had seen Golovkin. Bob had called two or three uh, Golovkin fights. I had not previously called a Golovkin fight, and I hadn't met him. And I had been hearing about him, of course, for years and years because of his long amateur career and because of the buildup in his professional career. So... uh, I was, I was excited to, to be there and to have this experience for the first time with this dynamic and fascinating guy. And uh, the question in my mind going in is, of course, all right, is he going to be everything that he's cracked up to be? Uh, how much of this is hype? How much of this is myth-making? How much of this is real? And uh, when he landed the body shot that, that ended the fight and... Uh, when Matthew uh, actually screamed at the top of his lungs. I mean, he literally let out a sound like I have never heard from any fighter in the ring. And I believe we were told later that Golovkin had broken his ribs uh, or his rib with, uh, with that shot. Uh, and of course, later down the road against Canelo, you wonder where did those body shots go? But uh, it, when you're fighting a great counterpuncher like Canelo, you're your tactics change. But but that night, uh, I'm in a position of sitting there wondering, all right, how much of this is real and how much of this is hype? And when Macklin screams and goes down on the body shot and the fight is over, I'm sitting there thinking it's real. He's amazing. Yeah, I was actually at that fight too. I remember that scream. I remember that. And I also remember him almost, almost getting carried out of the ring. I had never seen anything like it. And to bring up your point for the Canelo and the Triple G, only eight, eight body punches landed. In the in the two fights, well, I triple G, you know, on what a phenomenal body. I mean, uh, counterpuncher Canelo is, and mm-hmm. and uh, that he he not only has the timing to hit you at the moment that you don't expect because of his counterpunching skills, but he has the power to to make it stick. And uh, and so you know that means that the Gennady Golovkin who fought Canelo Alvarez is a different fighter than the guy who fought against Matthew Macklin, and it's all about what's coming back and going back to what we were talking about in our first entry into boxing here with Tyson Fury uh, against uh, Deontay Wilder. I have to wonder in my mind how much of what Fury did in the second Wilder fight was taking a page out of the script from what Golovkin, or excuse me, what uh, Canelo did to Golovkin in their second fight. Because you'll recall in the first few rounds of the second Canelo-Golovkin fight, Canelo is the one who's coming forward, going downhill, forcing Gennady backward. The last thing I think Gennady ever expected from him. And that changed the psychological aura of the fight. And I just have to wonder whether Fury watched that and said to himself, 
I'll bet you I can do this to Wiley. Yeah, absolutely. From one uh, trilogy or we're talking trilogies to one of the most classic ones, February 2000, Mandalay Bay. We'll start with the first fight, Marco T Antonio Barrera versus Eric Morales. Well, you know, I, I put on the list either the first or the third fights. Uh, to a certain degree, all 36 rounds between them are, are identical, uh, other than the six rounds in the second fight when, um, when Morales chose to fight more defensively and, and backed up and fought as a counterpuncher and altered the pace and changed the way uh, the pattern went. But for half of the second fight, all of the first fight and all of the third fight, this is all out mayhem. Two great combination punchers going at each other. Both of them can lead. Both of them can counter. Both of them can deliver hard shots. Both of them can take hard shots. It was breathtaking. Uh, you know, and everybody talks about Gaddy Ward, and I loved Gaddy Ward, but that's not as high a level of technical skill as what you saw between Barrera and Morales. Barrera and Morales, you're looking at two of the seven or eight most skilled fighters in the whole world, and they are going at each other as though it is a venomous sparring session. I am going to show you who I am. It was incredible to watch, and it was incredible to feel uh, the aura of those two fighters at ringside for those fights. Man, I, I always get a kick out of it when I see them now ringside next to each other, uh, you know, as friends, because they were such the bitter enemies then. It was never supposed to happen, right? The right. last thing that you would ever see was Marco Antonio Barrera and uh, Eric Morales sitting together as good friends. And there it is. And that's, was... <laughs> that's the beauty of boxing. That's yeah. the, to me, that's the single most beautiful thing um, about the sport. It wasn't that shocking that Arturo Gatti and Mickey Ward fell in love. Uh, you know, they are to a certain degree the same person. But Marrera and Morales are very different people. And they certainly didn't fall in love. But over a long period of time, they developed a unique respect for each other because nobody else could challenge each of them the way each of them did. Right. It's, it, 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 I do a double take every single time. But finally, lastly, perfect segue. Uh, this is in no particular order, but we'll go right to Arturo Gatti. Wilson Rodriguez, March 23rd, 1996, the theater at MSG. Well, you know, um, there are a lot of great boxing movies. And, and in many great boxing movies, there are these little uh, story within the story type segments where you see uh, somebody tear a glove or uh, open a cut or, you know, all the things that you've seen. Uh, and you don't often get to see those things graphically live during a fight. Uh, but the, the story within the story of, of Gaddy and Wilson Rodriguez, of course, is Joe Souza, the, uh, the cut man in Gaddy's corner, trying to keep Gaddy in the fight with both of his eyes opened up and, and bleeding. And um, the, the, the literal truth is that Joe Souza tapped Gaddy's knee while the, uh, the referee was counting in <laughs> front of him to try to see whether Arturo could, could see, could tell what was going on, showing him fingers, et cetera, et cetera. And every time the referee would show Gaddy three fingers, Sousa would tap Gaddy's knee three times. Uh, and he kept him in the fight that way. And the, uh, you know, the shot in the dark knockout in, I think, was the fifth or sixth round, did it again later in a fight against uh, Gabriel uh, Ruelas in uh, Atlantic City. 
that was a Gaddy trademark. You know, he he's beaten up. He's out of the fight. Whoops, one left hook. That changed everything. And uh, and that's the way he knocked out Wilson Rodriguez. Just unbelievable. Goosebumps on top of goosebumps throughout this entire chat. Thank you so much for joining us here. An awesome list for, for our listeners out there uh, to go back and watch some of these all-time classic fights. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here. And hopefully we see you ringside. Hopefully uh, we get back watching fights ringside and, and you're behind the mic uh, where you belong. I kind of expect that'll happen. Thank you very much. See you, Jim.